This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for November 21st, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Today we have another in the fall semester Marxist and Socialist Studies lecture series at UMaine. This is Mark Cryer, the director of the Bureau of Labor Education at the university, speaking on four foundational theories of labor activism in Maine last week. Our mission is to provide services, advice, um, and education to the working people of Maine. In order to do that, we work primarily with labor organizations, unions, and the Maine uh, American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, the Maine AFL-CIO. This is a historical review, what we're doing today here, and I should admit up front that I am not a historian. I am a labor attorney by trade, worked on the union side for many years, many, a couple decades actually, and that is where I'm coming from. What I'm doing today is part of a greater dialogue that is going on in the labor movement here in Maine. The AFL-CIO, which is a union of unions in Maine, has a committee called the Movement Building Committee. And part of what the Movement Building Committee does is meet and think about the past. Think about the history of the labor movement, its lessons, its failures, um, its tactics, strategies, and then try to apply them to our, our current circumstances. But in addition to that, in addition to sort of looking inward and at our own past, that committee goes out and does what I'm doing today. They go out and talk about these movements to people in Maine. Um, on, and it's important on two le- at least two levels. One is as an education in itself, the value of knowing your own history, But the second part is that we really do, as a movement, want to elicit a response from the audience. We are hoping that you will think about these movements, that you will think about the current condition of working people, and you will make some judgments, whether, you know, they don't have to be deeply reasoned either. I'm certainly not expecting any brilliant discoveries today. I haven't reached any myself. But... To get that information out into the public sphere and have people talking about these historic movements and the condition of labor now. What, if anything, can we learn? What, if anything, can we draw from these movements and bring back into practice? Or what failed and why are we still doing it, right? Because there certainly are things that consistently fail and guess what? We're still in the process as a labor movement of doing some of those things that have failed. So, we want to get this discussion out into the public, and part of what we do is have these dialogues. And a lot of what I will be talking about today came from historical materials that I found in these books, which are up here on the table. They cover a period starting in about 1820 and going uh, to the 50s, to the early 50s, and cover the labor movement in Maine, specifically in Maine. Our department, the Bureau of Labor Education, is very lucky to have worked with a now-retired professor, Dr. Scontras, professor of history, who wrote these books in exhausting, and I do say exhausting, they're not always good reads, exhausting detail about the labor history in Maine. You pick up one of these books, for example, Two Decades of Organized Labor, 1880 to 1900, and you can find you know, the names of the local unions, where they were, who were the leader of the union at the time, 
what they believed in, which candidates they supported, a wealth of detail and information in these books covering labor history in Maine from the very beginning all the way to the present, almost to the present. And uh, I, I dare say no state in the United States has that detailed labor history in one place. And we have them, and they're for sale. You can come and get them at our at the Bureau, they're very cheap. Also, they're at the Fogler Library, all of them. So you can read them at your leisure, or you can dip into them for research if you need to. There's a tremendous amount of data there, tremendous amount of information. Um, Scontris is fond of saying there's nothing new under the sun, and uh, I think that is definitely true. As we talk about the movements today that we have in our title, specifically the Knights of Labor, the American Federation of Labor, the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, the Socialist Party, we will see that these are not really new ideas, and you'll recognize them. Two of these organizations are with us today, at least in some form, the AFL and, of course, the Socialist Party. Others have disappeared or almost disappeared. So one of the first questions, I guess, would be, why these groups and not others? Why talk about, for example, the Socialist Party of Eugene Debs and not the Communist Party USA, or the Knights of Labor and not the populist movement with which they coexisted? Why choose these movements? Anybody care to venture a response? I, I think the reason that we have chosen these movements, and I speak here as the Movement Building Committee, which is composed of a number of people. Some of them are historians and also practitioners on the ground who are involved in labor organizing. The reason they have chosen these four movements, and I totally agree with them, is that these are the foundational movements. These are the seminal movements that provide the basis for what we now call the labor movement in Maine, and, and really the labor movement in the United States. But we could have included populists. We could have talked about communists. Uh, we could have spread the time scale out a little bit further and talked about the Congress of Industrial Organizations, AFL-CIO, the later part of that acronym. And we didn't. And I think the reason is partially because some of those movements derived their view on labor, their attitude towards labor, from the four movements that are in the title of this lecture. So we really believe that they are significantly different. And so we should take a moment to just look at these movements. Just briefly look at each of these movements and see what it is they believed and what we got from them. Let's start with the try to I'm going to try to keep it in chronological order, but these movements overlapped in time, they overlapped in membership, they overlapped in leadership, as we'll see. So they are very, very interrelated, um, and it's impossible to tease them out completely separately. They were not separate movements. They were movements that often coexisted with each other, fought with each other, shared leadership, and still managed to fight with each other. Um, so. It's a, somewhat of a mess, but I'll try to start chronologically. And I'll start with the Knights of Labor. So the Knights of Labor, officially the noble and holy order of Knights of Labor, was the largest 
of, of its uh, largest labor organization of its time. So it started in the early, well, mid-1880s, around 1878, and reached 28,000 members in 1880. In 1885, it had 700,000 members. 700,000 members. Now, remember the population of the United States in that time period. And just think about 700,000 members, each part of a a local chapter organizing at a local work site or in a local industry. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Its membership dropped to to 100,000 in 1890 and then continued to, to exist in small groupings as a social club, essentially, all the way until 1949. But it was never a force after the 20th century, really. And so there's a lot to question there. Um, the Knights of Labor were interesting because, in many ways, they were way ahead of their time. They were very inclusive. They included, for example, women in their organization as full members, something that other trade organizations had not done. Um, In fact, I can think of no trade organization prior to that that included women as full members that was not entirely composed of members, of women, which is a different category. So the Knights of Labor were very much ahead of their time in that regard. The Knights of Labor um, had... an an organizing theory that supposed that by organizing workers over time, they could raise the consciousness of working people to such a level that workers could, of their own accord, create self-sustaining worker cooperatives that would displace the normal industrial mechanisms of businesses owned by bosses. That, That was sort of a background theory of the Knights of Labor that they, that they had there. In reality, the Knights of Labor acted very much like a traditional labor union. They went to employers, they organized the workers there, they had contracts with employers between the workers and the employers. They enforced those contracts through a number of mechanisms, including strikes and arbitration agreements. But the theory of the Knights of Labor... The theory behind it was that the workers did not need the bosses. They did not need the apparatus of control. That they could, in fact, control the production process for themselves, for their own benefit. And to do that, they needed to raise their consciousness, they needed to be organized, and they needed to be organized at work sites and also across entire crafts, and that every person who was a working person in any way, of any race, with the exception of Chinese, (laughs) of almost any race, should be a member of that organization. And through that organization, using the existing social structure, including the laws, the courts, the electoral process, they could achieve this goal, right? So you could organize at the shop level where you worked, you could get a contract, Beyond that, you could run for city council, you could run for state office, you could support legislation, you could win in the courts, and at some point, 
in their story, in their vision, workers would see that they can do this themselves, they would take control of the industries through peaceful means, and they would produce for their own benefit without the structure above them of control and bosses. Um, Often this was called worker as citizen. Workers would be the core citizens of the republic. They would vote, they would elect their own people, they would run their own businesses. It would be a citizenry composed of workers, and the workers would run everything, and they would achieve this goal through peaceful means within the system. An interesting um, facet of the Knights of Labor is that they really were quite uh, strong in their belief, at least the leadership, that the system could be used to the benefit of labor. It could be used to the benefit of workers, that you needn't go outside of that system, except in so much as you needed to create the laws that benefited you through electing officials, through promoting legislation. They really, really did believe that. In fact, Terence Powderly, um, the most famous of the founding uh, fathers, they are all men, founding fathers of the Knights of Labor, he was very ambivalent about strikes, which is interesting because strikes had heretofore been one of the only ways in which workers had power. They could withdraw their labor in mass, right, as a group. And Powderly, uh, you know, the Knights of Labor, they did engage in strikes, but they preferred to have settled agreements. And they actually preferred to have arbitrated agreements instead of strikes. So you would organize at a work site, you would reach an agreement with the bosses, and in that agreement would be an agreement that you would not go on strike, but you would submit any issue that you would take to the level of a strike to a binding arbitrator who would make that decision for you, and everybody would follow the results of that arbitration. That's an idea, they call it interest arbitration, that you see now. It's very, very common now. Interest arbitration, for example, is what uh, occurs at state level with public employees. In Maine, for example, public employees are not allowed to strike legally. They could still strike. They can walk out. But they can't do so legally. They're supposed to present these issues to a third-party arbitrator or panel, in this case, that will make the decision. So the Knights of Labor were way ahead of themselves in terms of that. I mean, we're talking about things that the Knights of Labor were considering in 1878, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This is Mark Cryer of the UMaine Bureau of Labor Education speaking at the university last week. At this point in the lecture, he handed out copies of the Constitution of the Knights of Labor from 1878. We've posted a copy of that and of other handouts from this talk on the WERU Facebook page if you'd like to follow along. If you'll turn to the back page, the third bullet down says, Substitution of Arbitration for Strikes. So that, that is a really interesting proposal. It's a very early proposal for that in the United States. There are other places where, in Europe where that had already been thought of. But in the United States, the idea that, that workers 
would, instead of walking out, submit to some sort of legal concept that would support their needs fairly is, is really an interesting idea. Um, and it occurs at a time when workers had no rights, right? It's sort of an odd feature, I think, of their constitution because this is occurring in the background where in most states, in the United States in 1878, any two workers conspiring together to leave a factory could, in fact, be guilty of criminal or at least civil conspiracy charges. You're conspiring to thwart trade, right? You're conspiring to do something against the interests of trade and commerce. Um, charges like that were filed frequently against unions. And so the idea that you could substitute some sort of arbitration for a strike, I think, in 1878 is, is an interesting and for, it's either forward-looking or, or naive. I don't know which it is, but it's one of those two things, I think. So you'll see other things in here that look very progressive or at least modern. Equal pay for equal work, the eight-hour day. But I also want to point out the last bullet on the second page. And that is a very interesting bullet. This idea, money issued directly to the people without the intervention of any system of banking corporations. That is an an odd thing, too, I think, to put in their constitution, although it was a very common idea at that time. It's an idea that that resonated with other groups as well. Uh, The populists were also working on that idea. And it it is sort of an interesting idea because at that time, although you did have banks that issued you know, could issue currency, so to speak, indirectly, you did not have the Federal Reserve System, right? Do we know what the Federal Reserve System is? Federal Reserve. Anyway, the Federal Reserve System is an odd quasi-governmental institution we have in the U.S. that can essentially issue money or issue debt that turns into money. And they, they are privately held banks working with the government in theory, under the control of the government, but really composed of privately held banks, regional banks, meet to make these decisions. There's a Fed chairman that is chosen by the federal government, but basically the banks themselves choose their leaders, they choose who sits on the committees, they choose who makes their policies. And this is exactly what they were opposed to, right? This is exactly the sort of thing that the Knights of Labor would have been opposed to, even though it didn't exist yet and wouldn't exist for another, well, 78, 88, uh, for another 30 years or so. So that's, a, that's an interesting piece there. And it's also interesting because opposition to what the idea of something like the Federal Reserve or the opposition to private banking interests being involved in the creation of money has, at present at least, it appears to me, largely been an issue of the conspiratorial right wing, right? If you were to get on the internet and, and type in Federal Reserve conspiracy or Federal Reserve, anything negative about Federal Reserve, you would come up with lots of right wing sites or libertarian sites who claim all sorts of outrageous things about the Fed, may or may not be true, I don't know. 
But that is an issue that is largely taken up by the right wing now. And it was a big issue then on the left, both at the level of the populists and also the Knights of Labor, who considered it very, very important that the government create and sustain a currency essentially um, on its own and, if possible, without incurring a debt, right? So I won't get into the economics of that, but that is now quite a, a, an issue on the right and not so much of an issue on the left. We all, I'll turn over again to the front page, and if you look at one, two, three, four, the fourth bullet, the establishment of cooperative institutions, productive and distributive. The idea, like I said earlier, was that workers would take over their own industries and produce for their own benefit. So when you read this particular part of the Constitution, I mean, what feelings does it raise in you? This idea of cooperative industry. Industry run by the participants themselves without the need, perhaps, for a management apparatus. Does it raise any alarms to you? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? What, what are your thoughts on that? Anybody? Mary? I think it sounds like a good thing. Do you, do you feel any negative edge to it? Does it in any way worry you? No. <laughs> I, one of the things I, I ask, the reason I ask that is because I found this little thing from Charlie Contras' book, one of these books here, from a newspaper about that very article. And the newspaper, the Rockland Free Press, in 1885, 1885 was near the height of the Knights of Labor in Maine. The height of the Knights of Labor in Maine was actually 1886, arguably. That's when they had the most local organizations. So we're almost at the height there, 1885. This is the Rockland Free Press. And they, reading this particular article, they say that... The, that this proposition is, quote, undisguised socialism, a device of the lazy, incompetent, spendthrift, and worthless, to live by the brains and industry of the frugal and the virtuous. That is an interesting interpretation of that. Um, I, it's very, I mean, from our historical perch here, you know, a century later, it seems really... Odd, right? I mean, you get you have this tiny little snippet here about cooperative institutions, and and then in, in 1900 they added something to that about uh, well, I don't have it here, but about the institution slowly replacing the need for coercive control or something. But even at that point, which was much later than when this was written, I don't see the incipient disaster that they see there. But apparently, it re that resonated with people. There was a lot of discussion about how this, the danger of cooperatives, creeping socialism, and perhaps chaos and mayhem, um, those were words that were mentioned in that article as a response to that article. So does it warrant the vitriol? Probably not. Um, I just want to talk briefly about the Knights of Labor in the United States. So, the, I mean, in, the, in Maine. So, just to give you an idea of how fast movements can change. In 1888, there were 3,704 members of the Knights of Labor listed on their rolls in Maine. 
In April of the same year, there were 2,800. In August of the same year, there were 1,900. Well, 1,902. In, 18, in 1889, just a year later, in August, 933 members. So, I mean, that's pretty much how fast a movement can rise and fall. And Maine was following the perfect curve of, of the United States. That's pretty much how it went in most places in the United States. They were very popular for a brief period and collapsed rather rapidly. One of the main representatives of the Knights of Labor at the National Convention in 1886 said that members were leaving the order with as much haste and as little ceremony as rats leaving a sinking ship. So um, at the same time, in 1896, which is considerably after that, you have people saying that organized labor is more closely knit in Maine than it ever was before. The Knights of Labor have almost every laboring man in their ranks. Not very likely, right? So you can see how journalism really plays a part in this, right? Or a negative part. So we have the fear of incipient socialism and mayhem caused by people forming worker-run cooperatives. And then you have all this talk about, labor, about the Knights of Labor basically running everything. In, 19, in 1896, when, let's see, what are my numbers here? They would have had less than 933 members in the entire state of Maine. Significantly less. Did they ever try anything? Did they ever do the arbitration for strike? Yes. And did they ever have a, a cooperative uh, that would produce and distribute things? Yes, they did. They, had, they created the Granite Cutters Association of Maine, which was an entirely worker-run organization that acted as a union but also did their own granite cutting and own work and for a profit and distributed it equally. I, I know that in other states they had arbitration agreements that did work and that were enforced in courts. That's the only reason I know about them because the, what would happen is that you'd win and then the company would say, forget it, I'm not, I'm not imposing this rule, you know, go fish. And then you'd go to court and some of them were imposed by courts in other states. I don't know if they had any successful arbitration agreements in Maine. It wouldn't surprise me. They had a lot of, they had many, many locals in Maine. They had a very big local in Brewer. They had a very big local in Bangor. Uh, I do not think they had a local here, but it would not surprise me if they, they did. The problem with the arbitration idea at that time, we're talking before the 20th century, is that courts were so hostile to labor. And that's not an opinion. I mean, that is really reflected in the judgments of courts across almost every, well, all, all 50 states and the federal system. They were very, very hostile to unions. And so if you're going into a court to enforce a contractual agreement and your standing is going to be challenged right away because you are, of course, a criminal conspiracy, that brings into question whether that's a really practical way to get anything done at that time period, right? I mean, you could, as an individual, go into court, maybe, and say, I have this agreement with my boss, but once you get two people doing it, 
or three or four or a hundred. Now you've committed a conspiracy, right? You're attempting to stop you know, trade within the state by illegal means, including possibly withdrawing your labor that you've agreed to, you've already agreed to supply. So, I mean, it's sort of, it's a bad metaphor, but it's sort of like a drug deal gone bad, and then I go into court and say, you know, I want to enforce it. But both sides are criminal, so in this case, only one side would be. So, we can see that they had a short life. They're very, very famous. Um, I mean, when I asked if people knew them, I didn't see anybody but professors who were aware of the Knights of Labor, but in the labor movement, the Knights of Labor are pretty much universally known. I mean, you might find some very new union members who don't know who they are, but I generally find union members do know the Knights of Labor or have some idea of who they are. So they, they are an important contribution to the history of this. And as they declined, most of their members went over to the American Federation of Labor. Before you move from the Knights of Labor to the AFL, were there other factors at play in the economy, or was the AFL drawing people away with a different message, or what else contributed? To well, let's let's get to let's get to that. AFL definitely drew a lot of their members away. Um, the economy was. You had between the time between 1878 and the 20th century, you had numerous recessions that were extremely severe, um, and so you you really had a, a real test of the U.S. economy. And even though the Knights of Labor strongly believed that you could organize farmers, for example, it was a hard task for them, right? And most of the United States was agrarian. Most of the people were living on their farm and could, in theory, return to subsistence, right? So it, they could, at some level, withdraw their wage, at least temp- or their work, temporarily because they could survive on their family's farms. Um, you had the populist movement at the same time, which was organizing the agrarian sector of that society. Of society. Um, and then, and doing it very well, I might add, and then on the other side, you had the AFL. And the AFL, I almost said AFL-CIO. The AFL, the American Federation of Labor. So the American Federation of Labor was founded in 1886 at the height, what would have been the height of the Knights of Labor in Maine. They immediately started taking members from the Knights of Maine. There's records of that. And you had dual members for a while. You'd be a member of the Knights of Labor, but you'd also be a dues-paying member for an American Federation of Labor craft union. And the American Federation of Labor took a lot of the ideas from the Knights of Labor and made them much more practical. I'm going to make some judgments here because we're running out of time, so I don't want to get too deep into the details here. But trust me when I say that the AFL was 100 times more practical than the Knights of Labor. The Knights of Labor did organize people. They did have contracts. They did even win, not, not in Maine maybe, but they did even win court cases based on their arbitration agreements. So they did real practical things, but they were not primarily a practical... I mean, they had a lot of ideological issues in addition to the practical on-the-ground work that they did in organizing workers. The AFL pretty much dumped most of that ideological content. And, I mean, that, the argument against the AFL is that they are business un- unionism, right? That they act 
like a business, that they run the workers' movement the way businesses or corporations run companies. And we could argue back and forth about that, but they were certainly practical. They organized regional places where unions could meet from different crafts and discuss their jurisdictional issues. Most of the early strikes of the American Federation of Labor were jurisdictional. That is, they would organize a craft, plumbers or masons, and then they would say, all work done in this area has to be done by this group of our organized masons, our organized plumbers, our organized carpenters. And so you had those jurisdictional issues, and they were geographic. Originally, they were geographic, which is an interesting idea because they dropped that later. So originally, you'd have a craft, like a plumber, and they would say, every piece of plumbing that is done in the city of Bangor has to be done by a union plumber, or they also represented barbers, by a union barber, right? You couldn't go into a barber shop unless it had the AFL union barber local plaque or whatever. It wasn't a plaque. It was a, I've seen them. They're pic- they look like little framed pictures. And, and that was without regard to employers, right? So whether you were doing plumbing work, that the city hired you, or you were a contractor or whatever, it had to be done by our plumbers. They quickly dropped that idea. Not quickly. It took a decade, a little more than a decade. But they pretty much dropped that idea and went with organizing employers. So if you're a contractor, all your workers have to be. But this other contractor, we're not really organizing him right now. We still want to organize him, but we're focusing on you. They focused on employers. And I think that was probably done for practical purposes. It's much harder to organize a region. But the Knights of Labor organized regions geographically. In addition, you know, any worker in this area should be a member. The AFL set up local organizations um, that coordinated craft unions to work together on jurisdictions so that they didn't cross each other's jurisdictions. A plumber didn't do a carpenter's work. A carpenter didn't do a plumber's work. They recognized each other's picket lines. They recognized each other's strikes. They didn't do each other's works, work, and they raised labor. The idea was that you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, that everyone's work would be worth more, and then we would all increase in wages. So they organized local unions, and then above that, they organized coordinating centers at the regional level where those unions could get together and talk about jurisdictions, and then at a national level. And they all of those bodies actually had originally, or pretty close after the founding, staffers. So these were places where you could walk in and there was somebody there, sitting there. It wasn't, the Knights of Labor were bad about that. The Knights of Labor met on a regular basis. They would post their meeting notices. They would, by word of mouth as well. But after that, there wasn't much of a presence for the Knights of Labor in real concrete terms, whereas the AFL-CIO immediately created institutions, including buildings and staffers and paid organizers, all the things that we think of as the modern labor movement. And in fact, jumping ahead quite a bit, the AFL is the modern labor movement, right? In some sense, they won this argument. Whether they're doing a good job of it or not is, is a question, but they brought into their movement elements from these other movements and consolidated those movements 
and what we have now in terms of the labor movement essentially is the AFL, the AFL-CIO now, but that's what it became. This is Mark Cryer of the UMaine Bureau of Labor Education speaking at the university last week. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. So one of the things that the AFL-CIO brought with them from the Knights was a belief in the system. They originally did not engage in electoral politics, seeing it as secondary to worksite organizing, but eventually they would embrace electoral politics and essentially embrace the idea that change could occur within the system. Not only could it occur within the system, but that you had to be sort of a hyper-citizen. They supported every war. They supported World War I, which was a huge division in the ranks of labor. The Socialist Party did not support World War I. The industrial workers of the world were outrageously opposed to World War I, and most of their leaders were arrested because of it. Um, and the Knights of Labor, I, you know, I'm actually not familiar with their position on it, but I could guess. Um, and I can find out if somebody wants to know, although by the time of World War I in 1917, the Knights of Labor were largely gone as a movement. Um, but the AFL supported World War I. The AFL supported even court injunctions against other unions, for example, which is something that the socialists were, you know, very much opposed to. Um, and so you have a very different view of unionism from the Knights of Labor. It is a unionism stripped of most of its ideological idealism. You don't have the idea that workers are going to take over the country, either through cooperatives or any other means. They are going to work to get the best deal that they can. A fair day's pay for a fair day's work was the motto of the AFL. And they believed it. I don't want to put them down. I mean, they really believed that. They worked hard for that. But, of course, unlike the Knights of Labor, they also, at least initially and for quite a while, did not allow women to join. Um, The only way women got into the AFL is because AFL constituent unions, AFL is an umbrella organization with many unions underneath it, some of the constituent unions wanted to organize women. And that's how women got into the AFL, but the AFL was not originally interested in organizing women. They were not interested in organizing other groups that were deemed (laughs) inferior under the law, right? Or did very little to organize them. I mean, there's some argument now where historians say, no, they wanted to organize them, but were recognizing that it would be difficult because they didn't have the same rights as, as other people. I don't know if that's true or not, but very little effort was expended on the part of AFL-CIO to organize blacks, women, you name it, any, any group. What? Just the AFL, the CIO. The CIO, well, but the CIO doesn't exist it, yet. Now, that, I mean, that is the point, eventually, is that the AFL eventually is forced to bring in all these elements. They are forced to bring in a lot of the elements of the Knights of Labor, for example, allowing women and minorities and or trying to reach out across larger groups of people. They um, try to organize industrially. So one of the things that the AFL does 
when it goes into her area, now this is circa 1910 or something, but is they would break people down into crafts. So you're a mason, pipe fitter, I don't know, carpenter, and they would try to organize along those lines. So who do you know, who do you work with? Go get those guys together. Let's, let's form this union there. We'll form another union there. We'll have a meeting. We'll talk about jurisdictions, etc. So that idea, which you know, really has been a long-standing part of the AFL, was challenged in the 30s and the 40s by the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which is beyond our, our discussion here. But the Congress of Industrial Organizations brought industrial unionism to the AFL. And that's the idea from the Knights of Labor and the industrial workers of the world that you organize everyone that you take an employer and from the ground up you organize everyone and they're all in the same union in the same local, uh, realistically arguing for the same working conditions. And that, that was also an idea that was supported by the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party strongly believed that workers were essentially workers and that you needed to organize everybody and they should also be a card-carrying socialist member and vote socialist. And, but... But that, yeah, so you, the CIO changed that. But by themselves, the AFL without the CIO mainly focused on carpenters, electricians, masons, you name it, separate crafts. So, and the idea was that you could force individual employers across the nation to give you a better wage, a better working condition, and that that would eventually lift everybody up. And in addition to that, you would press for legislation that was supportive of workers' needs, and eventually they would run their own candidates, which is something that the AFL-CIOs spent a lot of money on. Um, But that you work within the system and that you would organize with local employers or across a local craft section of the craft spectrum, and you would raise wages there, and you would recognize the jurisdiction so that you're never imposing on somebody else's wages. I would never do your work. If you're getting $10 an hour, I would never go in and say I'm, I'm going to take nine fifty to do it. And that you would build solidarity in that way across crafts, across workers, and eventually you would, you know, that everybody would do much better. Um, the socialists were, were a little bit suspicious of that. We mentioned the Socialist Party of Eugene, of Eugene Debs. He ran for president five times on the socialist ticket, once from prison. Um, he never got you know, a, a significant portion of the U.S. vote, but he was well-known. He was a national character that people across the United States knew, which uh, is something you probably can't say of the Socialist Party today. How many people here know who is... Any, any leaders of the Socialist Party in the U.S.? You do? Uh, Gloria Lariva. Okay. All right, one. But, I mean, people knew Eugene Debs. They, they didn't just know him from the Socialist Party. They knew him because he was also a founder of the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, and he was a very, very outspoken union organizer. He organized for numerous un- unions. He was always in controversy. He was jailed numerous times. Um, The last time was at the beginning of World War I. He was jailed for 
inciting people against the war and for essentially working on behalf of the enemy. He, uh, espionage was what they convicted him of. He contracted tuberculosis in prison and, and died after he was pardoned, but, um, or soon after he was pardoned. But he was, you know, he was a real, real worker's worker, and people knew him. People outside of the labor movement knew him. Um, there was just a lot of recognition for the Socialist Party at that time. I have here the main socialist, which is up on our board, up on our wall at the Bureau of Labor Education. It's, the, uh, it's printed in Bath, Maine, April 2nd, 1904. It says socialism is coming in 1908. Um, the socialism and the Socialist Party of Eugene Debs were... I think a whole different phenomenon than what we have in the Socialist Party now, which is a third party. It doesn't really engage in electoral politics, or at least not in a way that gets a lot of support in the U.S., with the exception of maybe Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, maybe Bernie Sanders is maybe bringing it back. I don't know, but with, with that exception, I mean, Bernie Sanders is the closest thing that we've had to Eugene Debs, right? Because he's a nationally known socialist candidate who actually ran for office and garnered some support. I mean, at some point, I think it was 5% of the U.S. electorate voted in favor of, is it 6? 5 or 6 voted for Eugene Debs on the socialist ticket. So, and the Socialist Party did, you know, the Socialist Party believed that the system could work, just like the Knights of Labor. It could work on behalf of the average working person. It didn't because socialists weren't being elected, so socialists weren't in charge, and because workers didn't have the consciousness necessary to make the, make the system work. But they believed that you could elect socialists to positions of power in the capitalist system and have real effect. There was always a discussion within the Socialist Party about whether that, you know, ultimately whether you could have a revolution or significant change without recourse to arms or violence, whether you could do it through elections. That was a constant background argument in the Socialist Party. But for practical purposes, they ran candidates in elections, and they won some of them. So... They, you know, they had, I have the constitution, and I'll hand it out, of the main socialist party for you to look at. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. We've posted copies of this document on the WERU Facebook page, along with other handouts from this presentation, for those of you who'd like to view them as you listen. This is from 1912. So, yeah, no, the socialist party is, is a vastly different animal today, I would say that it is very, very different. And if you want to, that would be an interesting homework assignment for which you won't be graded. Find, and there are numerous socialist parties now, really. I mean, find the most prominent socialist party and compare their constitution to what you have here. And in that regard, I will also hand you out the preamble to the Industrial Workers of the World Constitution. Also, in no way... Um, this is their original 1912. It's not the original, but it's the 1912 uh, Constitution. I just randomly chose a date, and everything went from 1912. So the 
The in Industrial Workers of the World's Constitution, the preamble is essentially, as far as I know, exactly the same as it is today. And the Industrial Workers of the World still exist. Uh, they don't, as far as I know, they don't have any shops in Maine in which they have a contract, but they still exist. The Industrial Workers of the World were founded by, amongst other things, socialists including Eugene Debs. So they had a strong tie to the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party, although it had members in the AFL, dual members, the Socialist Party frequently favored, almost always favored, the industrial workers of the world over the AFL. And the industrial workers of the world, they are the one group in this group of groups that really stands out because... They are the one group that had a tremendous impact on modern, the modern labor movement that essentially didn't believe most of the facets of what the modern labor movement stands for. For example, the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, sometimes called Wobblies, didn't like to have a hard and fast contract. They like to, if possible, post wages on a daily, weekly, or, or at worst, monthly level. So they wanted to have constant negotiations with the boss. And the workers would get to decide the, the work, the wage level that they would work on on any specific day, for example. I mean, no other group tried to do that. Um, not even the Knights of Labor with all, with all their ideological fervor, and they were quite ideological, came anything close to trying to do that. And the IWW did try to do that. That wasn't an ideological point. They really tried to do that. Um, and they still try to do that, which is interesting. Um, in I, the IWW, like I said, they're still around. In 1997, I was briefly a member of the IWW. They gave me this organizing handbook from, uh, it should be a 1997 copy. 1997, they tried to organize janitors at my law school. Um, not, it did not go well. But um, amongst, the, amongst the many things that they tried to do is not have a contract, which uh, was interesting. They wanted to negotiate on an ad hoc basis. Um, and that's a very difficult proposition, not just for them, but for employers, right? I mean, that's a whole different world. And that was one of many things that the IWW believed that is quite a bit different. They did not believe that the system could work on behalf of normal, everyday people. The IWW accepted into its ranks everybody. They were strong supporters of industrial unionism rather than craft unionism. They wanted to, to organize not only everybody in an industry, but across geographic regions. They would try to organize small cities. They tried to organize Greenville. In Maine, um, in 1924, merchants in Greenville brought in KKK thugs and kicked them out of Greenville. Um, the offices of the IWW in Bangor in 1924 were raided by the state police and shut down. That was when they were trying to organize lumberjacks. But and with the lumberjack organizing, too, where they would briefly succeed, they would post daily rates. So... But they did not believe it with, about working in the system. They didn't believe the system could work for the average person. They didn't think it was worth trying. 
If you look at their preamble, I didn't include the entire Constitution. It's quite lengthy. But um, the preamble basically says it all. And the preamble says, amongst other things, that working people and employers have no interest in common. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but, but not by much. That there are simply no interests that they have in common. Starting on that basis, you know, you're pretty far outside of, for example, the AFL, right? So the AFL's idea is a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. And if they pay you fairly, you better get to it. And they believed that. They believed in hard work and so forth. The IWW, whether they believed in hard work or not, I don't know, but they didn't, literally didn't believe in the wage system. So no point in talking about a fair wage. They want to control the industry on their own behalf. And they don't want to do it like the Knights of Labor through a slow process of, of you know, slowly getting support and raising consciousness. They want to do it through whipsaw strikes. They want to organize large groups of workers to walk out in a whipsaw fashion, going through entire industries and paralyzing them. Um, This proved to be very difficult for them. They did successfully run about 100 strikes in their their span of history, well, from the beginning in 1902 until about uh, 1924. There were 150 strikes. About 100 of those strikes could be deemed successful including some of the most famous strikes in the United States, like the Bread and Roses strike. Um, There were a lot of strikes that they led that were successful, including some big ones. But they almost never, including in the Bread and Roses strike, held on to those unions, which is interesting, right? They could win the strike, but they couldn't keep the local going. And one of the other issues that the IWW didn't believe in is dues. So they believe that Members should pay their fair share, but they believe that members should do it on a voluntary ad hoc basis, sort of. Like that you would come in and collect dues from your membership at your shop on a regular basis, and people would or would not pay those dues. And if they did not pay them, they had to say why. And that would elicit a conversation. It's very democratic. It's a very interesting idea. Very hard to, to make work. So they led a lot of strikes. They did not lead a lot of successful strikes in Maine, but they did lead them. They did not believe in the system. They did not believe it could work on our behalf. Um, And so they thought we should change it. What do we take from this? Where are we now? We are now the largest labor movement in the United States is the AFL-CIO, containing the AFL, and in addition, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, When the AFL brought the CIO into its fold, it accepted the idea of industrial unionism. It accepted the idea that it is okay and even probably rational and a better approach to try to organize an entire union top to bottom instead of just pulling out the plumbers or the the construction workers or the drivers. That You try to organize everybody, and that movement quickly spread throughout the AFL-CIO, And um, so that part of it they accepted. But they didn't accept and still don't accept the ideological implications of the IWW, the Knights of Labor. You don't see any emphasis from the AFL-CIO in creating worker co-ops, although they do. There's the Lobsterman's Cooperative. But it's not an emphasis of theirs. So 
They also spend a lot of money on politics. In fact, the AFL-CIO spends so much money on politics that it became a divisive issue, and a large, a large, a good third to 40% of the unions in the AFL-CIO at one point opted out of the AFL-CIO to focus solely on organizing. That was the Change to Win Coalition, which included, at the time, uh, Service Employees International Union, Teamsters, Carpenters, a few others. Um, Some of them have rejoined the the AFL-CIO. So that's a constant flux. People going from change to win, they go back to the AFL-CIO. Some unions are both. So in Maine, MSEA, the state workers, are SEIU, so they're change to win, but they're also part of the Maine AFL-CIO, confusingly. So you have some mixture there, but there's a conversation going on about how much money to spend in political elections and whether it's valuable or not. But that's where we are today. And people would say that this version of, I mean, the IWW, which still very much exists, they just don't represent a lot of industries or work sites. They're, they're still around. They would argue that this is business unionism, right? That without stripped of ideology and stripped of well, certainly stripped of Marxism, right? The AFL-CIO was violently opposed to communism throughout the Cold War, worked with the federal government to out communists, and worked with the CIA overseas to do God knows what. Amongst some of the things they did overseas were, were the creation of fake unions. Um, what they did was reprehensible. What they did was basically reprehensible, although I will say that I used to get the AFL-CIO um, Asia Free Labor Institute stuff on the radio in Ch- from, and when I lived in South Korea from China, and it's very interesting. It's very pro, you know, it's very progressive. So they could definitely put on a progressive face. But they, they didn't do that in South or Central America by any... In Africa or in the Middle or, East. Yeah, no. Or even in Western Europe after World War II. Yes. Right. That's true. It, it, for, for example, Italy, right? They worked strongly against the Communist Party in Italy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of questions about the AFL-CIO's policy. It's definitely uh, favored the state and favored... Uh, the legal mechanisms of the state, both when they favor workers and also allowing them when they don't, right? Not protesting the law when it doesn't benefit workers in the U.S. or in other countries even more. That was Mark Cryer of the Bureau of Labor Education at the University of Maine, speaking there on November 16th. His was the final lecture in the fall semester Marxist and Socialist Studies Lecture Series. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture, heard here on WERU-FM every Tuesday at 4. I'm Amy Brown. Democracy Now! is coming up next, followed by a night of great music, only here on your community radio station. WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org.